So what you heard in Jeremiah just there was sort of, if you will, him looking back and him looking forward. That, that Jeremiah 31 represents a turning of the times. Uh, there was one era and now there shall be a new era. And New Year's, if you will, to make a broad leap from Jeremiah 31 to New Year's. New Year's is more than a holiday. It is more than the advancing of the clock. It is, not to be too dramatic about it, a profoundly psychological experience. And by that I mean this. What other moment, other than like weddings or funerals, are you both individually and collectively forced to consider everything about your past and everything about your future? At what other time do you start to really consider about everything that your past means to you and how you interpret it and everything that your future might mean for you. It is, in some ways, how you respond to what happens on New Year's is a barometer of who you are in your heart. If when New Year's rolls around and you're only full of regret, that is an indicator. If New Year's rolls around and you are full of hope, that is an indicator. Whatever New Year's does to you, however you respond to it, however you medicate yourself or face it full on, it speaks to how you think about your heart, your world, your universe. It's big. It's a profoundly psychological experience. And if you will, if you ever hear the phrase profound psychological experience and New Year's, inevitably you are led to think about Forrest Gump. Because there's a really brief moment on New Year's Eve 1972 when everything that I've just spoken to you is sort of condensed into about 50 seconds where he is met with revelers he's never met before who speak something very poignant to him. And then when the ball drops, as you're about to see, he and his friend represent two two extremes of a spectrum. So here it goes. Here's New Year's Eve 1972. (coughs) Start all over. Everybody gets a second chance. goes fast. Did you catch your line? Don't you just love New Year's? You get to start over. Everybody gets a second chance. And then, you know, Forrest, the eternal optimist, ha! right? And Lieutenant Dan, who all he is is his past. In that little stupid moment in that bizarre little campy film, you see longing. You see the admixture of hope and the admixture of great cynicism. 
And in that moment, you especially hear in her voice, don't you just love New Year's? This, this longing to be unburdened, to, to somehow set aside what has come before and perhaps reach out to <coughs> something that might be new, to be unburdened, to be free. Free in ways that you may not even have words for. There is a longing to be freed, and something like New Year's captures that longing, and it's a universal human longing. For the first foray into 2020, we're going to listen for several weeks to one chapter of the whole Bible. Romans chapter 8. Yes. And we're calling this little brief series an elevator pitch. Uh, for those of you that are not up to, you know, nomenclature on what that means, an elevator pitch is if you're trying to advance an idea, you've got just a couple minutes on your elevator ride up in which you have to cast the broad contours of that idea and to speak of it in a persuasive way such that those who hear might want to hear more. That's your elevator pitch. From 4.1 to 4.18, if you can't get it out, that's it. Done. Romans 8, to put it anachronistically as impossible, is Paul's elevator pitch to us about the gospel. It is, it is the essence of the good news of Jesus spoken both in a comprehensive frame but just as compactly. It's his elevator pitch. Brief but brilliant. And we want to listen to it. Why? Because I dare say in 2020, you might be presented with the opportunity to make plain to somebody else who has no idea what you're talking about to bring the essence of the gospel into their frame of reference. You may have a chance to do the elevator pitch version of the gospel with somebody. That's one reason we're going to do with it. Here's another reason, which I'm even more certain of. In 2020, if the opportunity or the, the occasion hasn't already arisen five days into it, you're going to need to speak this elevator pitch to your own heart. It may need to go broadly in other ways, but it may need to go more deeply than you might imagine. You're going to need to whisper it to yourself, recite it to yourself, cry through it, shout it, sing praises to it, write music about it, pray in response to it. You and I, I'm going to need Romans 8 in 2020. I just know that in advance. I'm that smart. <clears throat> but so are you. And I don't know why. I just think that you will. And in these first four verses of, if you will, Paul's elevator pitch to the world about the gospel, he would say that the first plank of understanding what the gospel is all about is to understand the freedom that it offers. A freedom that we all might long for, but which we don't have words for. And so we're going to listen to the first four verses and ask three questions about the freedom to which this passage points. One, freedom in what sense? What's he mean? Secondly, freedom by what means? How does that happen? And then thirdly, freedom for what purpose? Not just a freedom from something, but a freedom for something. For what? Freedom in what sense? Freedom by what means? Freedom for what purpose? Four verses. Here begins Paul's elevator pitch to you, to me, and to perhaps others that you might share it with also. So if you're able... We're in chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1. <clears throat> if you can stand, would you? 
Romans 8, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the free word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Reading the book of Romans, it has been said, it's kind of like climbing Mount Everest. I've never climbed Mount Everest, uh, nor do I plan to. Um, Not with this head cold. But uh, what I do know about climbing Mount Everest from others I've been told is that there is no such thing as a straight climb. You don't just start at the bottom and head to the top and say, we got this, right? There is only climbing in stages. You've got to get to a certain altitude, and then you've got to camp because you've got to generate enough new red blood cells in order to be able to navigate the altitude. So you go, you ascend, you stay, you sit, you simmer, you look, and then you move on. That's how you do it. To to consider Romans, by starting in Romans 8, um, it's kind of like taking a helicopter ride to a really high point and being dropped off that you might just sort of celebrate the vista around you. That's what we're doing here. Romans 8 is Paul's, if you will, Praise God from whom all blessings flow chapter to unpack for us all both the beauty and the glory of the good news that is in Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. (laughs) Romans 8, therefore, is a celebration of that goodness. But we have to see it in context. Uh, To understand the celebration, you've got to understand the sobriety that comes before it. And the sobriety that comes before it from chapter Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 7, which Brad admirably unpacked for us last week, is to say two things to us. Romans 1 through Romans 7 is out to make two ideas very plain to us. One is this, that there is a condition universal to every man, woman, and child that is a problem that we cannot change. There is something in us, of us, from us that is just part of us that we cannot shake. There is that condition. And the other thing that Paul's out to get us is this, that there is a unique solution to that condition that is found in Christ alone. Two ideas to set up Roman 8. There's a condition that we're all born with that we can't shake, that's a problem that will steal from us, and that there's also a unique solution to that condition that comes to us in Christ alone. What is that condition? For all of our splendor, for all of our dignity, notwithstanding the astonishing capacities and skills and gifts and beauty and glory and creativity that is part of every single human that's ever walked this earth, all of that notwithstanding, we are inescapably and irreducibly sinners. Some of you chuckle at that word. Oh gosh, are we talking about that again? <clears throat> but when you talk about sinfulness, Slow down. Don't jump to conclusions. In its clearest sense, it does mean the breaking of law. 
Transgression is offense. It is stepping aside, thinking yourself more competent, and going your own way. It is saying to God, I know better. I'm going to do this. I'll break your law. But that's, you know, that's really symptomatic of something that's further upstream. Sinfulness is not primarily about law-breaking, though it means that sinfulness is about estrangement. It is about being sideways and hollow and grieving and at far ends of a remove between two that are meant to be one but which are not. And some of you understand that to the greatest degree, and I do too. You know what it is to be far from someone that you would rather not be far from. That's estrangement. That's alienation. That's sorrow. I have told you before that my wife's favorite author is Pat Conroy. Uh, He writes from the low country of South Carolina. Um, In 2010, he wrote a book, not of fiction, but a book about the books that had most shaped him. But the dedication to that book was unlike any other dedication he'd made. He made it to a daughter named Susanna, but a daughter from which he was estranged. And in that dedication, he wrote, this book is dedicated to my lost daughter, Susanna Ansley Conroy. Know this, I love you with all my heart and always will. Your return to my life would be one of the happiest moments I could imagine. Don't know what occasioned their estrangement. Don't know how long they had never spoken. But in that dedication was his amendment, his his attempt to begin to make an amend because estrangement from her was everything. Paul was out to tell us in the first seven chapters of Romans that our condition is more than one of just rule-breaking. Something is broken between us and the Lord. And the only way that you might characterize that is by the way of estrangement. God's character is expressed in his law. And as Paul said in Romans 7, which you heard Brad speak to last week, the law is spiritual. It's not simply about you committing to certain behaviors and ticking off little ethical boxes. He's not concerned with you just sort of being Dudley do-right. He's worried about your heart, and that heart is broken because you don't care, and I don't care. And that's estrangement. And that estrangement percolates and assimilates in all sorts of different directions. You want to hear, you want to hear a really sobering version of what it means to be estranged from God? Jamie Smith is an author who just wrote a book about St. Augustine who said this. It is a terrible and terrifying thing to know what you want to be and then realize you're the only one standing in your way. To want with every fiber of your soul to be someone different, to escape the you you've made of yourself, only to fall back into the self that you hate over and over and over again. There is an estrangement from God and downstream of which is an estrangement from your own self because you realize that which you want to be, you can't be. You can tell yourself you can. You can go to the Tony Robbins conferences you want. But in the end, you're left with yourself. And that's estrangement. And that's our condition. So where is the good news? Where does it come from? 
Your nature is such that you hear of the law that he has presented to you, and there is a part of you that wants to embrace it, but there's another big part of you that wants to defy it. And knowing what he wants is not enough. What then is this freedom that Paul is out to say here at the beginning of his elevator pitch? That estrangement that you're beginning to sense, that you know fails you in a thousand different ways, that estrangement is over. The estrangement has been replaced with the welcoming embrace of a Lord who delights in you. That all of the reasons for separation have been evacuated. And in that is freedom. And that's why he says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's the main word there? Condemnation. Condemnation means judgment for sin. And where there is judgment, there is separation. If I have offended you, if you have offended me, there is a wedge that has been driven between us. And that which we have, we've lost. And there's a judgment, if you will, there that we have to acknowledge. And with that judgment comes separation. And with that separation comes estrangement. Condemnation is just another word for talking about we are broken We have offended and we can't remake. Humpty got pushed. But in Jesus, that separation has come to an end. Have you ever been estranged from someone? Then you know what it feels like. You know the hollowness. You know the grief. You know the sense of powerlessness because you can't do anything about it. But for some of you who have ever been estranged, you might have been blessed with another story in which there was a reconciliation. And in that reconciliation, you had another set of feelings. Relief. Gratitude. Joy. But something else. You had a new compulsion. A new desire to protect, to preserve, and to defend, and pay homage to everything that you've now regained, that you had for a time lost. You want nothing else to do nothing that would ever besmirch what is between you. You have a new compulsion to protect that which is there. The freedom that we have, the nature of that freedom, is not only that the estrangement has come to an end, but that you have a new power by which you will seek to protect, preserve, and defend that which you have with the Lord. And it's called the Holy Spirit, except it's not an it, it's a he, it's a who, it's a person. And that spirit takes up residence in you, and that spirit provides a whole new compulsion for you, and that spirit therefore is out to provide you not just a new set of ideas or codes by which you might conform yourself to, but a whole new motivation for why you might serve and follow. That's freedom. It's not just the freedom to do whatever you want, it's finally the freedom for what you were made Look, all this talk about condemnation and separation and estrangement, you might go, wow, that's great. High sound in theological terms. Thanks, you all, you know, nod my head, rub my chin. Thank you. Why are you so worried about that? I'll tell you why. Some of you know really well how self-condemnation has worked its way into the fabric of your existence. 
If you were shamed for a very long time, you still feel that. And you're even more likely to dispense it out to people that don't even deserve it. You know the way self-condemnation works because you feel the weight of it. You feel the burden of it, even if you're not conscious of it. And for others of you that you were just going to say, I'm not going to let that get me down, then what do you do? You seek to compensate for it by being the best at everything you can. Why? Because you're trying to outrun and outlast everything that you knew you hated. Good Lord, friends, do you know how much your day would change if you believed at this very hour that the greatest source of estrangement and condemnation you might ever meet has been resolved? Do I believe how it would change the way I think about everything that's facing me right now if I really believed that the deepest source of estrangement that I might ever face has been solved? That would be freedom. Look, um, everybody's got disappointments in this room. Everybody's got devastations in this room. You all know sorrows. Some of you walk in this room with just barely holding back the tears from your sorrows. And those sorrows are real and they're important and we don't mitigate them. And yet... There is something to this freedom that somehow, somehow, in his mystery, the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, those things are real and you properly grief, but there is something, an even greater estrangement that has been solved. And though it may not change any of those circumstances that leads to your disappointments, your devastations, and your sorrows, at least this truth will keep you from being swallowed by those other things. That's freedom. Oh, to believe it. Part of what might help you believe it, though, is not simply to believe that there is a freedom and its nature, but how it came to us. How does this freedom come to us? That's the second thing Paul's trying to get across. And he gets it across by a phrase he uses twice, this idea of being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It is not like being in Fletcher. To be in Christ is to be united to him. And I know that's an abstraction too. Let me add another abstraction to another abstraction. To be united to Christ is to be this. It's to be united to his past and united to his future. Whatever he has done for you in his past, that's yours. That's mine. It belongs to you. And whatever he has accomplished for the sake of this future and this world, that's yours. That's mine. And it can't be taken. That's to be in him. is to have his. To be seen as God sees his son. Well, then there's the rub. How does one get in Christ? Here's where we get a little thick theology. Buckle your seatbelts. Sharpen your pencils. Here we go. I promise there'll be a payoff. How does one get in Christ? For one, it's all up to God. That's why he says in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You heard Brad say it last week. Here's the law. It presents to us a picture of the beauty of the Lord. But every time we look at the law, we realize, as Paul said, there's another force within me that's out to defy it. And he calls that the flesh. And we're going to unpack what it means, what he means by the flesh a lot more next week. Suffice it to say it's this. Flesh is shorthand for Paul saying that which is frail and foolish and will sell you out whenever it can. It is this part of you that you can't get rid of. It is our nature. 
And the law, despite the way it speaks with great clarity about what it means to follow him, it's not enough. It's a lot worse than just saying you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. The law is such, it can show you what righteousness is, but it can't make you want it. And that's the nature of the law that Paul's trying to get across to in Romans 7 and Romans 8. What the law is out to get from you, it can't produce in you. It can't draw it out of you. Oh, it's clear. It's unequivocal. But it doesn't have what it requires, not because of any deficiency in it, but because of what you bring to the problem. So if I can't, if, if I want this freedom... If, if that freedom is all bound up with an end to my estrangement, but I can't do it because I can't follow his law with perfection, then what can? God can. And how does God do it? <clears throat> not by sending us a letter, not by sending us an emissary, by sending us his one and only son. His only son. Don't, worry, don't lose that word only in the passage. Look, some of you in this room know what it's like to send a son or a daughter off to a, a, a theater of armed conflict. You've had to entrust them into a place of harm, this one you beloved. Some of you were that kid at one time, and somebody had to entrust you to some other place. And so you know what it's like. You have felt what it means to give that which is precious unto you into a place of harm. And you have felt it, and you get it. And Abraham felt that, and he got it. In that, in that bizarre and brutal moment in Genesis 22, when God asks him to sacrifice his one and only son, and he goes, and just before he does, bang, here comes the sacrificial ram, and he's got that covered. And then God says to Abraham, now I know. Now I know you. You wouldn't even withhold your only son. Abraham gets it. And so does God. Because he sends his son into danger. He sends his son into harm's way. And why does he do that? He does it by sending his own son to do what? It says in verse 3, for sin. Jesus came to do a lot of things. And as you read about his life in the New Testament, you understand a lot of what he did. He came to teach, to be sure. He came to demonstrate God's power in many ways. But what was his key mission? To reconcile. that which was the source and which nurtures our estrangement with God, he has come to put an end to that. He has come to reconcile us to God by taking upon himself what was killing and afflicting us. Brene Brown, she's a sociologist at the University of Houston. A lot of you are already familiar with her. In a very different setting, talking about relationships where there is now estrangement because of neglect or infidelity. The only thing that thing will ever fly again is if somebody forgives and as she puts it, if there's ever to be forgiveness, something's got to die. There is no forgiveness without cost. And in a relationship where there's been neglect or infidelity, the only way that will survive if is for, for somebody to forgive and for that person to forgive. It will be a process. It will be painful. It will be hurt in many ways that they never imagined, and it will cost them. They will have to die to the rage, they will have to die to the impulse to recrimination, they will have to die to their bitterness, and it will cost them, and it will be painful, but there's no other way. 
Brene Brown gets that. You know who else gets that? In 2010, Pat Conroy writes that book, and he puts that dedication to Susanna. And in 2016, Pat Conroy announces to the world that he's got pancreatic cancer, and a month later, he is dead. But at his bedside, Susanna Ansley Conroy. She had all sorts of reasons to remain estranged. She had to find other reasons to supplant those earlier reasons so that she might be in relationship with him again. She had to eat what was painful. She had to die to all of the things that would have kept her estranged. Brene Brown gets it. Susanna Conroy gets it. And Jesus gets it. If you're going to die for those who treat you as if you're a hostile, as if you're an enemy, you've got to die to all of your reasons why you would just say, fine, have it your way. God does it, sends his son to be a reconciliation for our sin. And that's all really high sounding. I want to show you a picture of it that I think captures it with utter brilliance, not perfectly, but it works. Ironically, another film with Tom Hanks in it. Uh, Stephen King wrote a book called The Green Mile about a bunch of inmates on death row in the South. Tom Hanks plays one of the officers that, um, that oversees death row. And one of the inmates scheduled for execution is a black man named John Coffey. Don't lose the initials there. We come to discover that John Coffey was falsely accused, but anyway, indicted and convicted. But we come to learn that John Coffey is more than the eye might seem. He is a man that is, first of all, full of compassion in a way that you wouldn't expect to find as a death row inmate. But he also manifests a certain power that nobody can quite get their hands around. And not even he himself. And in this very brief scene, Tom Hanks, who happens to be suffering from a debilitating kidney stone, is on the floor writhing in pain. And something happens. Boss, I need to see you down here. This is not a good time, John Coffey. Not a good time at all. But I need to see you, boss. I need to talk to you. What do you want, John Coffey? Just to help.
you just do to me? I helped it. Didn't I help it? He heals him of the kidney stone. How? He's one just like Tom Hanks. And he gets as near to Tom Hanks as he can. In some ways, a little bit against the will of Tom Hanks. He kind of manhandles him. He thinks he's out to get him, but he's actually for his ever-loving soul. And there, what does he do? He takes upon that which is afflicting Tom Hanks in order to heal him of it. And it costs him. The pestilential flies flying out of his mouth. The curse. The corruption. He takes it upon himself. And it steals something from him. If that ain't Jesus, I don't know what is. That's how God works this freedom in. He sends one who is just like us. He sends one who comes as near to us as God can come near to a person. And he gets so close and pulls us in in a way that we don't even think he's out to do something good for us. That he might heal us. But in in the healing process, it, it takes something from him. That's how he does it. That's why these magi bow down at the feet of that Savior, barely knowing why. He's come to heal. He's come to fix that which is forgiven. He's come to restore that which is broken. You hear all that and you think, (laughs) the Lord seems to be exceptionally concerned about sin is that it is it just so that we don't do bad things no oh it's certainly part of it and it's the centerpiece of his work but if you think that's all of it you haven't heard the whole story you haven't even heard verse four why why does he bring that freedom through the work of his own son through reconciling us that we might no longer be estranged from him and giving us his spirit. Why? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We'll do that flesh versus spirit thing a lot more next week. It's this verse that the most ink has been spilled on about. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does that mean? Look, in part it means this. Did the requirement for a sacrifice for a sin, was it satisfied? Yes. In Jesus it was satisfied. The righteous requirement was fulfilled. Did Jesus himself fulfill the fullness of what the law required? Did he satisfy the righteous requirement of the law by his own obedience? Yes, And if we are in him, by faith in him, then his record of obedience is our record of obedience. That's the gospel. But to what end? Why give us his spirit? St. Augustine put it like this, really succinctly, about this passage. Law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. The reason we read Jeremiah 31 was to anticipate that day when the law that was written on tablets might be written upon the heart. And partnered with Jeremiah is the prophet Ezekiel who says there will be a day when I will wash you clean and give you a new heart and give you a new 
spirit. A new inner compulsion, a new power to incarnate that which I have emblazoned upon the nature of the law. I will do that. I will give that to you. And when it says that new spirit in you, which we see unfolded in when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit that he comes to give, that Holy Spirit is out to do one thing, and it's not to be your life coach. It's not to be the proverbial angel that sits on your shoulder saying, hey, do that. No, no, you don't want to do that. The Holy Spirit has one goal. And that's for you to see something. It's for you to see something that might be that which stokes a new desire to follow. And what captures that, I want to show you one last clip. It's uh, an episode from This Is Us. A younger man, William, in his 20s, has just been um, convicted of a drug possession crime. And he's about to be sentenced that day. But he and his lawyer have been summoned to a meeting, ostensibly with the state's attorney and the judge, to talk over sentencing, maybe to strike a plea, whatever it is. But then this happens. So this should be pretty quick. We'll just be in and out. Your Honor, what is this meeting? I didn't know we'd be having any kind of... I wanted a word with Mr. Hill before his sentencing in private. Sir, I can't advise my client to waive his rights to speak to you or... It's okay. I'll be right outside. I gave a young man 10 years today, younger than you. He stole a TV. 10 years for stealing a TV. It wasn't even a good TV. I didn't want to do it. Just like I didn't want to give five years to a different fellow yesterday, 15 years to another guy the day before that. I'm a judge. And the strange thing is, I don't make the rules. So, round and round it goes. I know the ending to each one of those stories. They haven't even been written yet. I'm here, Mr. Hill, because you said something yesterday, and it stuck with me. You said you were the most disappointed man in the world. And I am here to tell you, I fear I am a close second, Mr. Hill. Because I'm the man who writes terrible stories, day after day, and I can't change the endings. And that, sir, is a horrible disappointment. So, I'm going to see if we can find you a different ending here. I'm going to take a chance on you, get you out, get you help. I don't expect you to be perfect. I know you'll make mistakes just like the rest of us. But I will ask one thing of you. Yes, sir. I want you to look at my face. I want you to look at this too tired, too old, too fat face. Lock it in your brain. 
And if you ever start heading toward the ending I don't want to write, I want you to picture this ugly old muck. You picture this face. And you make a different choice. Can you do that? Can you find me a different ending to your story? judge of his own volition commutes the sentence and asks only that that convicted criminal would remember that face. What is the Holy Spirit's main job in this world? To shine a light on the face of Jesus and for us to see it and to believe and glory in its beauty. It is that face that the woman caught in adultery in John 7 was asked to look. And Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. The Holy Spirit is that power out to help us to see the face of Jesus. The one who takes our sentence for us. that we might then live for him. And when you believe that his face is beautiful and that his work is sufficient to your need and that your sins are forgiven once and for all, then this becomes true of you. As Jamie Smith puts it in this other book on St. Augustine, he puts it this way, it is the blissful rest of someone who realizes she no longer has to perform, she is loved. We find joy in the grace of God Precisely because he is the one we don't have to prove anything to. Friends, that's the gospel of Jesus. By his work, you have nothing to prove. By his work, your life is not a performance. And when we remember that we're out not to perform anything or prove anything, you know what that compels us to do? To follow him. To obey him, even when it costs us. Not to prove it, but to say thank you. Because we've seen the beauty of his face through the work of his spirit. And that's freedom. And I don't have it. And I want it. And I bet you do too. And maybe in this year, he will inch us forward a little with thanksgiving. That's Paul's beginning of his elevator pitch, and that's where he leaves it off right here. And that's where we'll end, so let's pray. Though we languish, though we look maybe with cynicism, though we think it can't be possible, that it's just a fairy tale, through all our doubts, our fears and our anxieties that will assault us again as soon as we leave this place. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. That we might see his beauty and somehow mysteriously want to follow him and even to trust that we have nothing to prove and no reason to perform, but every reason and every thanksgiving to follow and obey.
may it be unto us as you have said. Amen.